One thing from that was I read an article about a woman, an old woman who was about 65, who killed uh, her lover. She was in the south of France and she was sent back to England and tried. Had she been tried in France, it would have been a crime of passion. But as it was, I think she was put in a lunatic asylum. And also, just various women you meet that have lived in that sort of, been housewives for a long time, often say, there were times when I could have killed that man and stuff like that. And it was really just taking that one step further and writing a story about a woman that actually did. Hello, America. I'm Alana. I'm Joe. I'm Tom. We're the Thompson Twins, and we're introducing our new album here on Album Flash. I didn't say the name of our new album. Anatomy of a Song. Alana Curry. Sister of Mercy. Thompson Twins. She lives. Welcome to 80s Ography, Anatomy of a Song, and very excited to have interviewed such an iconic star of the 80s, Alana Curry of Thompson Twins. It was a really interesting interview, and she was great. So enjoy, and I will speak again after. The interview starts now. So how do you how do you feel about this interview? Do you I take it you don't talk about Thompson Twins that much? <laughs> no, I don't really talk about the Thompson Twins that much. It's sort of odd because you you know you have to go back and where's well, forty years ago it all started. And I don't know. I'm always interested in what's going on now, really, and going forward. So the whole thing of sort of going back, yeah, you have to yeah sift through it all, and some of it was quite traumatic, <laughs> you know, and some of it was fantastic. So I don't know. I mean. Yeah, it's been a long time. It's been a long time. Okay, we'll try and, try and skip over the traumatic things if we can. Starting in 81 then, when you joined the Thompson Twins, what was what was your aim or intention when you joined? I don't know that we particularly... Oh, well, we wanted to be a pop band. I mean, I'd been in the previous incarnation of the Thompson Twins coming and going because that was the way it had become. And it's basically, they had moved into a squat across the road from where I was squatting in South London. And I had a little mad thing called the Unfuckables, which was me yes. and another girl. 
was it? What was in the repertoire then? You had one gig, didn't you? Is that right? We did one gig at the anti psychiatry conference in Red Lion Square, yes, we yeah, do. which was hilarious. And we, we, th we thought we were selling out by doing a gig. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> so we got lots of our friends to come as well, and we had lots of bands. And it was so what really were some fun. of the songs you sang? Sing songs. We just played long, wailing. <laughs> dreadful things I mean it was terrible but it was sort of great we also used to do graffiti as well so we would write in black was black spray cans and we'd f blow out eggs and fill them with black paint and throw them at billboards that we considered were sexist and you know I mean it was it was a sort of gang mentality it was really fun and it was you know this was sort of post-punk time yeah so I suppose so really I think at one point, yeah, this old, the old incarnation of Thompson Wins sort of said, why don't you come out and play with us, some fuckables, you know? And the girl I was doing with, she thought it was a total sellout. She wouldn't do it. So I said, I go on my own. So I used to take toy instruments and go and play with them and do uncles. And then I'd sell records in half time and after the gigs and things like that. So I was sort of hanging around with them anyway. And then I went on a full scale tour with them. I can't remember which one it was. And it ended just terribly. Everybody hated each other, you know, one of those band moments. And I remember walking back to my squat across the road and quickly Tom followed me and then Joe followed me. And within sort of half an hour, we decided to be a new band. So that was the three piece. So is that off the back of In the Name of Love? Because that was the very different kind of song. Yeah, so In the Name of Love was we were all in the studio uh, making the album called Set, which was the old incarnations. And Tom had just got a synthesizer. So then he, I mean, he was just playing around. And then we all started playing around and we made that song In the Name of Love, which was a dance record. I think that was the one it was supposed to be a filler on the album you know and it turned out to be the one that we really loved and we wanted to dance and I think by that time the big band had become very big and it was all very political we were living in squats it was really hard to keep it all together and I think the idea of the three of us working together making dance music was and pop music was so exciting it was um you know it was freedom and we followed in that the in the name of love thing we had the synthesizer we had the drum machine we had lots of percussion instruments and we had loads of ideas so we all started writing the three of us started writing together and we did we made a demo tape I think it had four tracks on it and sent it to Alex Adkin, who was in the Bahamas. And he just finished producing Grace Jones' nightclubbing album, which we loved, really loved all the percussion in it. And um, weirdly, he got back in touch and said, yes, come to the Bahamas and we'll make a record together. And it was so, I mean, it was just so mad, the whole thing. It was really good fun. So we sort of, you know, got on a plane, went to the Bahamas, rocked up in our sort of leather jackets and our squatty clothes and 
smelliness and um we made a record with them that was a quick step inside kicks yeah so we'll get to sister of mercy later but in terms of a general um question of, of how you approach songwriting as a trio what was did it always tend to work out the same way would you do most of the lyrics and tom would do the music and also what was joe's contribution to the to songwriting um well it always usually began with a story we were all joe and i particularly as storytellers and tom was you know a very quiet person and he was he was the best musician so i would write the lyrics tom would write the melodies and joe's role was almost as he was the sort of what do you call it the interceptor i guess but he would throw in a line or he'd question something and you'd end up pulling out a verse and replacing it. So it was a very three-way thing. You know, when you're writing songs, there's an element of, what is it? I mean, you're winnowing, you're, you're distilling all the time, you're getting it down to what it needs to be. And I think Joe was very magic. He could do magic and records. <laughs> that sounds weird, but that's sort of what happened and how it worked. Can you give an example of that where he just his contribution other by by saying something or by contributing something it kind of added to the song? No, he'd go off in tangents. He'd just, you know, we'd be talking about something, we'd be writing something, something would be happening, and he'd just go off on a tangent about some completely obscure story about a crow who, you know, <laughs> he, he, he would just throw these odd things in and we'd all have to come back and consider that and then sort of pull that in I don't know it's a funny thing you know none of those songs would have been written if it hadn't been for the three of us all being there at the same place same time doing them you know there's like a weird alchemy to the three of you that made it all yeah, absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. we were really good friends you know and the other thing that was happening of course was Tom and I were madly in love we were having a crazy love affair you know so we were just head over hills mad in love and then Joe was sort of so we would go head to head sort of arguing about something as you do when you know you're discovering somebody and Joe would completely get in the middle and be the third one and break it up so it was it was never one against one you know it was never yeah. one against yeah. one it was always a third person so you'd always come to this decision because there's three of you yeah, yeah. odd number yeah so and 83 was the, the the big breakthrough year what was the first moment do you remember the very first moment we sensed well, this is really taking off? Was there one moment? No, not really. Um, so the gradual thing was just gradual success, like you were getting a single that's going up the charts and it's felt like a gradual process of becoming more and more successful. Well, I think as soon as we were on Top of the Pops. Our next act are about to make their first ever appearance on Top of the Pops. They used to be a seven-piece band, now they're a three-piece. Will you welcome the Thompson Twins and love on your side? You know, that's, that was the thing. And suddenly people started recognising you. And that was really alarming. <laughs> you know, that was sort of weird. It was like, why are they looking at me? <laughs> <laughs> and then you realise it because you've been on the top of the pops the night before. And I do remember one time being in the squat and, you know, we had loads of girls outside the front door banging on the front door. And we were going, what have we done? What have we done wrong? And, you know, getting down on our hands and knees and having to crawl out the back way and over the fence and through the next door neighbour's house to escape it was nuts it was fun it was very very rapid that rise and it was to do with i think top of the pops yeah so you had massive hits from quick step and sidekick with love on your side and we are detective sure was we are detective always designed as a duet Effectively. We Are Detective was a really bad song. <laughs> it was a great song. 
It was a novelty song, you know. We were in, we had been sent to the countryside. We started writing those, we started writing those songs in the squat. We sent off the demo, we got the thing back. And then we went to this house called, I think it was called Sandridge down in Wiltshire. Um, and we it had a fabulous ballroom and we set up our little studio in there and started making more tracks, writing more tracks. And it was just one of those stupid, playful things. You know, Tom started playing that tango. Joe and I started tangoing across the floor. We were just messing around. And then we wrote that song, you know. It wasn't, it, it's not a great piece of work, but it was fun. Somebody's watching me. Now I'm nervous and I shouldn't be. Somebody's got their eye on me. Perhaps I should invite him up for tea. We saw him smoking by the newspaper stand. There's something odd about his glove left hand. Saw him again inside the old cafe He makes us tense, we wish he'd go away We are detectives We are selects We are detectives Come to collect It's a great pop track. So would, would the music tend to come first and then you'd... you'd get a no, sense of what the lyrics are from the tune or from the no theme. no 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 often often it was the other way right, so it was a lyrical it. line and then a music would come or well it went both ways actually both things happened or it would be a rhythm or it would be an idea or often we nicked things from other people there was quite a lot of that going on as well just you, you think an example of that where you took something from another song as your inspiration no but it's that thing of when you try and copy something yeah. it never ends up sounding like the original anyway i mean i know other people People and bands that did that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you sort of start out with a point and then you go off because you're, you're in love with a particular track of somebody else's. And then by the time you all work on it and it goes through the process, it sounds nothing like what it did originally anyway. So, so later that year, obviously, you had Hold Me Now, which is a massive smash. It's a fantastic yeah, yeah. So was that one where the lyric came first? Because then it was inspired by an argument you'd have with Tom or a fight. And Yeah, I think the funny thing was we used to smoke. In those days, we smoked cigarettes constantly and ate chocolate bars and crisps I think that's what we lived on we were really skinny and um I think we'd given up smoking and so it was like oh we had this great lovers quarrel and I just scrawled down those lyrics really really quickly it was a sort of you know a makeup song and he he put that he put he put the first pieces in and it just rolled and I think we wrote that song probably in about five minutes the best stuff always came yeah. really you know it was all we used to have this thing about it where we'd go away and write and we'd set up studios and as as the band went on and there was more money and there was more fans hanging around the front door and stuff things like that we'd get sent or we elected to be sent away to different places these various houses and um we always had this thing so you'd set up the studio and you'd have to put the time and you'd have to be in the studio for the writing you couldn't sort of wait for inspiration do other things and wait for the inspiration to come you sort of had to be there but we really had a thing that it felt like you were blind and you were just looking for the thing that was a thing and then you'd put your finger in the sky and the lights would go on you know it was that sort of feeling when you hit on a really good song where you got the lyric and the melody and the rhythm and there was something else that extra bit that just made it fly mm -hmm. and could you tell like specifically with hold me now but generally like could you tell this is going to be a hit single or even this is going to be a single you could tell when it was you could tell when it just worked 
and it just worked. Yeah, Hold Me Now, I think we just, yeah, it was it was quite an unusual thing for us because it was quite open, it was quite raw, it was quite emotional. It was actually very simple in its construction and we hadn't really done anything. We'd, before that, we were hiding behind words and games and jokes and all sorts of things. So it was quite interesting that that just came out like that, yeah. I have a picture interesting about it especially interesting the fact that you wrote the lyric for Tom to sing about your point of view in the argument you both had <laughs> that's kind of it's kind of got the kind of winner takes it all kind of thing where Bjorn's writing a lyric about Anietta's point of view but he's writing it about their divorce kind of thing so this is about re reconciliation but it's kind of a very interesting viewpoint yeah yeah very and also you know it played with we played with sex and gender a lot too so that was also interesting because I was writing the lyric from my point of view I would sometimes make allowances for him being him and sing it <laughs> You know, but, yeah. but most of the time he was singing women's words, you know, or my words, which women's words, you see what I mean? So yeah, yeah. that was sort of interesting in that time too. That seemed, that was, an, that was, yeah, that worked. Was that, I'm trying to think, think of your songs, but was that ever explicit where he was actually singing a song from a specific woman's point of view? Or was it more a general thing like you she's expressing your thoughts and your feelings through song because he's singing? Yeah, he was expressing my thoughts and feelings about things and he often didn't know where they came from. He was singing things that I I had it's that thing of, you know, when you're when you're a lyricist a lot with songs, I mean, you start with so many different things. It's always different threads that come in and then you're sifting through the whole lot. It's like poetry, just to get them down, but you want them to fit into the rhythm. So you want to evoke a feeling, you know, so you're always sifting. So he would get the end result, but he would often not be too concerned about where they came from. So you so wouldn't like discuss the lyric then? You wouldn't sit down and explain, this is what I want to convey in the music with this lyric, or we'd want to find out what do you mean by this verse? Or what are you actually saying? So yeah, I sometimes. I mean, it was all different. Sometimes, sometimes I did. But it's that thing: is if you write words for someone else to sing, I think you've also got to give them. You know, you let the singer puts themselves into into the thing. So it was very much open to his interpretation. Right. So we get into eighty four and mm -hmm. into the gap, which is a um, big album for me. It's a fantastic album. It's aged, I think it aged really well, actually. When was the last time you listened to it all the way through? Oh gosh. Um, well, <laughs> 20 years ago, <laughs> I listen, sometimes I listen to mixes of things or B-sides. I find obscure things on the internet, but, you know, I really don't go back very much. I don't go back and look at a lot of the stuff. I'm, I've got 
other things going on in my head and but on a saturday night do you not think that i pour a glass of wine and just just put the cd on just have a listen go back because I, I i always say this to our guests like if i was them i would like just be talking about it all the time i would just be like oh i did that it's amazing i would just listen to these albums endlessly thinking and think that i did that i was involved and that's amazing you no, know, that no there's a there's a really funny thing i think i don't know if it happens to other people i haven't talked about a lot but it's like when we used to make records they were your babies and they were your babies until they were delivered and you knew you know even though I never used to particularly I wasn't a great player so being in the studio wasn't something you know I used to do my parts and whatever but I could never leave the studio I was still in the studio all the time because the songs they were my songs and I didn't want them taken right or left they were my children I was sort of you know I was there producing them through school I had to see them right to the school (laughs) gate but once you got to the school gate and you gave them and they went out into the ether then they ceased to be yours they were other people's it's like the work my work here is done and you you know you'd leave it then of course you'd play them when you played live they would come back and they'd be a different thing again then and you get to know them in a different way but um so no I don't really listen to them I had a real sidekick sort of moment for a while listening to 12 inches a couple of years ago and I loved them I really loved some of those 12 inches and just some of the parts were fabulous I was mm. I was listening to the 12 inches sisters of mercy the nine minute nine and a half minute version before we we, we started talking because I, I do love 12 inch mixes yeah. I mean, hold me now 12 inch mix is absolutely amazing I listen yeah. to all the time it's just something you just lose and it's just so like beautiful great thanks yeah so would you be involved in the 12 mixes would you actually mm, not really that was would fun. you have to sign off on them would you have to listen to it and say yeah that's fine that's good go with that one or yeah no that was more tom the 12 inches were more tom's thing you know that was his fun but to pull him apart and put him back together and you know he by by then he'd found good engineers so they liked working and you know that was his thing or they would go out and be mixed by other people you know as well Mm. yeah okay so talking about into the gap again um i want to have a moan at you complaint um i I found an interview explained why you didn't print the lyrics on your albums (laughs) do you remember your rationale for that because that annoyed me as a kid that for that album and future days there was no lyrics there so enjoy it as a kid listen to the album following the lyrics so so can you explain your justification for that please blimey that would have really annoyed me as a kid <laughs> yeah it's like i love the lyrics but yeah. i never had them because i don't have i used to have to listen to the radio and and to this day i have completely the wrong lyrics for songs i find out <laughs> 60 years like you know years later that it was something else um i think what we wanted was people to listen to the music we really wanted them to listen to the whole thing and and make them make the tracks their own i think that was the rationale but it would have annoyed me too i don't think i'd do it again sorry okay it's a bit late but fine i'll forgive you uh so um on the interweb anyway I know, I've got the lyric up here for Sister of Mercy, so that's fine. Um, Hold Me Now is obviously a a breakthrough hit in the US as well. So how did having a massive hit in America, how did that change things? Ooh, that was, yeah, that sort of, yeah, that pushed us into the stratosphere, really. I think it went to number three in the American hits and uh, in the American charts, the main American charts. Yeah, so that was huge. We were on TV shows all over, and then everything was orientated towards the States and touring in the States and we lived in New York for a bit and we spent a lot of time in LA. So yeah, that was all happening there. And it was that, that sort of made us big, you know, you got invited to good parties then. <laughs> so that changed um, your approach to the music then, were you always thinking from that point on, oh, 
the American market. It's got to it's got to be tailored or be accessible for the American market. Yeah. No, but I think we were. I think I think we did the two albums, the first two albums, Psychics, and then Gap, and then really we should have taken a big break. Yeah. After we then went and did Future Days, and that was in many many ways, and so many things happened. It was just we were too tired. We were worn out. We started repeating ourselves. We there were some good pieces on that. We made the whole album, Future Days album in Paris,、uh, with Tom producing it and me and Joe sort of doing more production stuff for him for his vocals and stuff. And the record company rejected it and said it wasn't good enough. It wasn't, you know, we had to do something that was in Hold Me Now. They wanted Hold Me Now Part One, Part Two, and Part Three essentially. So then we, you know, then it was just a great drama. We had them to re-record most of it with Noel Rogers in New York, and I love Noel, and he's great, and I love Sheik, but I just don't think he, you know, he Noel really put Sheik into the records. I don't think I, I don't know. But we'd had we'd worked with Alex Aitken on the first two albums, and Alex was really experimental and really open. He was. We also worked down in the Bahamas. There was Sticky Thompson, and there was Sly and Robbie. You know,、yeah. great guys. Jones' mum played tambourine on Sister Rosie, <laughs> and backing vocals. I mean, there were kids running. It was really our sort of place. It was family, you know. Yeah. And then I think going to New York and suddenly being in this big league, and you're with all these really slick musicians. Because we were good, but we were messy as well. But that was what made our sound, I think. Too. Yeah, part of the charm. Mix of of at that time, you know, the new digital with. What we used to call smelly armpits, you know, there was that whole human, slightly out of tune, slightly, you know, there was things that happened. I used to play fire extinguishers and stuff like that. You know, Alex was always encouraging experimentation. So I think,、uh, yeah, that that suddenly got very big, and then it got really messy, and then yeah, they just it was all about numbers and money, and I think we were very very tired, and we should have just. You know, we did. We made that Future Days album, and then Joe left the band. I got pregnant. I lost the baby. I mean, it was just—it was hideous from beginning to end. My mother had a stroke while we were in New Zealand, and she was on tour with us. I mean, we just had a series of absolute awful disasters, and then Joe, culminating in Joe leaving the band,、um, just walked out and said, "I'm going to San Francisco." And we said, "Well, we're going to Ireland," and that was it. That was the last thing that was said. So, and it all fell apart at that point. You know? Yeah.、Um, yeah. Yeah, so I don't think you can do that speed with that. We, you know, we had an eighteen-month a record contract that basically had an eighteen-month cycle, and it was five-album deal. So it was right record tour, right record tour, right record tour. And in the end, by future days, we were sort of more or less writing about being on the road. You know, 
Yes, because what else is there to write about? Gives you on yeah, the, it, the was, it was like we'd lost what, what, what it was that made it really good fun for us to be in that band in the first place and, and to work together. And that's really common in the 80s. You look at a lot of bands, like how prolific they were. You look at it nowadays, you can go three or four years between albums, but then it was literally an album a year or, or yeah. two every three years. Mm. So it's, it's very hard to maintain that, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was that, what, what, you know, yeah, I mean, look at Adele. She does an album every five years. How fantastic is that? I could have worked with that. I would have still. Yeah, and, and she releases the same <laughs> song each time. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's like people forget the last song and just release the same ones, give it different titles. Fantastic. <laughs> it's a scam. No one's kind of worked it out yet. Because mm. people, people like it because they know what they're going to get. But that's, that's what made groups like the Thompson Twins so good because they, they, were, they were original. And there was You never knew what the next single was going to be like. You I mean, look at the singles from Into the Gap and they're all so different to each other. Yeah. I mean, You Take Me Up is not like anything else you did up to that point. It's completely different. Yeah, well, I, I remember when we went to America and we used to do, you know, so you know, we came out, out of here and then we had some hits. Uh, so we went there and people would always say, oh, what's the concept behind the album? And we just sort of look at each other and go, what's in a concept? We just wrote songs yeah. and you put them together. But weirdly, what would happen is you'd put them all together and there would be a concept. You know, it would evolve, it would come, it would appear when you put all the songs together. You would realise that there was, an, because a lot of what we did was instinctive and a lot of it is about following that when you're writing, you know, that thread. So you do get a commonality and we followed along things and there was very much, we were, we were you know, we were a, a girl and two blokes and one of the blokes was black, you know. So it was, there was this mixture of, we were always looking for the universal thing between the three of us that wasn't about gender or race or, or anything else, differences. We were looking for this commonality that made you sing, that made everybody feel joyful or down or, you know, those common emotions. Take me up. And it's such a strong visual image as well, very unique to have that makeup in a band of the man, a woman and a black man and just <laughs> universal and available and open to everybody. Yeah, and everybody yeah. thought it was contrived, absolutely contrived. <laughs> Wasn't that in the back of your mind when you saw there's seven of you, right? But the three of us, if we just splinter off, no, it was just think, the, think of the great look. Think of think of yeah. the logo with the hairdos. That'd be amazing. No, no, it was nothing no. like that. We were just you, you know, should take credit for that because that'd be genius if that was a deliberate plan to like look at the seven of you and say which three of us really stand out. Well, very quickly we sort of figured out what it was when we were in the room and went, oh, look at us, what is? And you know, and then I did that logo with Andy FX, and we played on those things. Of course, we played on that. You know, that was our... Um, the genius logo is just, yeah. yeah. And it was all about the hair. I remember somebody the other day, I had a big, some big, had done my hair in some wacky way and they just stood there and went, oh, Lana, it's always been about the hair. Speaking of which, when Tom cut, finally cut off his long ponytail, did you do it? Did you cut it off? I can't remember. I can't remember. How would you not remember that? That long, iconic ponytail when he finally got rid of it? You don't remember that moment? You didn't like... Make a big no, thing I of it. Make some kind of... I think some, didn't some fans in San Francisco do that? I think it was some girls cutting I, off. I, I, I have to look that up. Okay. 
I'll, San I Francisco. He might remember that. He may not. After this, I'm, I'm going to Google Tom Bailey San Francisco ponytail and see what comes up. All right. Thank you. Thank you for that tip. Thank you. Um, so you had three top four hits in the UK was um, into the gap with um, hold me now doctor doctor you take me up mm-hmm. and then he comes to the fourth single which yeah. leads to sister of mercy so we'll quickly ask a question about the single and work backwards to the genesis of the song so when was it decided that sister of mercy would be the fourth single uh, I don't know we didn't really decide on the singles there'd be some conversation that was more record company stuff so would you have to approve the singles would you ever make suggestions of this should definitely be the single or would you just yeah, yeah. we, pushed, we pushed the sister of mercy being the fourth one because I think we all sort of realised that it was a pretty unusual topic and we wanted to get it out and a lot of what we did you know we were we were not 19 when we did the band we were I was 24 Tom was 27 Joe was almost 30 I mean we were older we'd already had we we were quite political we had a lot of ideas you know I was a card carrying feminist you know we we were we wanted to put some idea we liked the challenge of putting odd ideas into songs and sort of flicking them, turning them around. It was, you know, subversive stuff, really. It was fun. That was our, that's how, you know, we liked, that was the way we wrote. Okay, so so Sister of Mercy, is it true it started off as a poem? Poem. It started out as a lyrical thing. Yeah, I can't remember that it was actually a poem. So you Um, always wrote it as a lyric for a tune as opposed to just starting it as poem? I had books all the time, so I was constantly writing poetry and I was constantly writing lyrics and ideas and reading and putting them together. I do remember it came from three places. I mean, it was there was an article in a newspaper, I think in France, where a woman had killed her husband and she got off, or it might have been the other way around, whatever. It was a crime of, called a crime of passion. And I thought that was just interesting. There was also a novel by a Canadian... There, a writer woman about a woman killing a husband that I'd read. Again, I can't remember what it was. And there was also my own mother who hated my father with a passion and said to me many times, you know, I would have killed him with a knife, with a knife. And she always said, with a knife, (laughs) relished the idea Um, because she was so angry with me. Was that noticeable growing up? Yes, it was a very interesting household. But anyway, that's a whole other novel. Uh, Okay, (laughs) (laughs) maybe you should write it. No, but there was always this idea of, so So also it was looking at the way that, um, you know, how good women are, to be a good woman and what that meant, to be a lady, to be, to be, to be somebody who put all their own needs aside in order to service a man over a long period of time. And they did everything societally they should have done. And, and then one day they just break and they just kill them. You know, that just seemed to me like, what a great topic for a pop song. <laughs> Did you have a finished lyric before you presented it to Tom for a melody, or was it just a, a work in progress? I, I honestly, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly, but it was. It did very much come from the lyrics that song. And then, but we had always talked. We talked about it a lot too, you know. So it was bringing it to the table, and and and, and there was that feeling of those sort of really good backing vocals, those high dark. Mm-hmm black backing vocals you know so it was really anthemic i wanted you know to have that sort of quality Hmm. and do you remember the first time he played the tune to you and sang the lyric no i remember it was down in i think we were on romney marshes locked up in a little cottage 
again, you know, away from everybody to write songs. And I remember Tom playing the melody and the beginning of it and just going, oh yeah, that's so beautiful. It was just so haunting, you know, that sound. It was wonderful. So we just followed along and, and grew it from there. And in, in terms of the recording of it, do you remember anything of the actual recording of it and the arrangements and how you came to the finished version? Oh, no. Most of the arrangements seemed we were done in the songwriting and they were pretty basic i mean they change a bit but they were sort of done in the songwriting process and then i do remember yeah that was that was recorded down in compass point and we were with alex and yeah we had grace jones mum play tambourine on it that's that's an amazing fact i'm gonna write that down again i've already written that down what's gonna write it down again grace jones mum played tambourine On Sister of Mercy. How did you get Grace Jones' mum? And did you notice Grace Jones' mum at the time? Grace Grace was recording in the other studio in the building. And um, her mum was there looking after her baby, I think. I mean, you know, there were people in there all the time. We just needed this, you know, there's there's a, I can play tambourine, but I couldn't play that church tambourine. And that was the sound I had in my head and I wanted. And and her mum played and was great. (laughs) I was just like, get in there, do it. She was fabulous. Do you remember when it was finished? I mean, would you, when you finished the song, would you like all just sit in the studio and listen to it and just be able to enjoy it as a song? Or would it always be like you're part of the process of finishing a record? You can never take a step away from it and just enjoy it as a track. Mm, Yeah, I can't remember. Honestly, I can't remember. I remember it being very powerful. I remember crying when I, when I heard it all pulled together at the end. It was really good. It had a real it had a real power that came through. Yeah, so it became it became one of the really great ones to play live. And how did it change from playing it live? Oh, well, did, your, I mean, did your relationship to the song change from playing it live from, and also from playing it so many times? In, I it was a, time? in the live gig, it was a real moment of sort of seriousness. So we'd go from playing some, I can't remember what we used to play before. Oh, the set list changed all the time. But, you know, when when you would play because it started off with Tom on his own at the piano, you know, and I used to stand there with a carving knife, you know, as a slip, very dramatic, <laughs> darling. Um, and, yeah, I can't remember. I remember it just it, all the way through. It was a very, it felt very church. Yeah, it felt very church. It felt very spiritual, that song. And it felt very serious. It's like, yeah, we've danced, we've sung, we've done the things. And now we're going to lay this number on you for you to think about, you know, but... Whatever. Did you get any letters or much reaction from people who experienced things from the song or related to the character in the yeah, song? I remember at the time we did, and we got a lot of we got a lot of people 
yeah, getting in touch about domestic violence and saying they loved the song and they related to it and da 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 da. But you know, it's a long time ago. It's very hard to remember some of the details and the things that happened. But it was, it's all, it's, it's a really powerful song. And I think now with all, uh, there's a lot of conversation, you know, currently about domestic violence and it, it's totally relevant. You know, it's still a relevant song. Yeah, it's, it's sadly still relevant as it yeah. is 40 years ago, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like much as it actually improved. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Do you know what links Sister of Mercy with every breath you take by the police? No, what does? <laughs> is this a quiz? Where have you been in the Google world? <laughs> uh, it's about Sting's ex-wife. Oh, oh, you Donald mean Francis Donaldy? Yes, it was oh, yeah, actress yeah. in the video for Sister of Mercy. Yeah, oh, yeah. was that? Yeah, you, you did, um, didn't you? Yeah. Yes, no, I did know that, but I mean, I was just going. Oh, I thought it was some line that we had nicked, and I had. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and the no, lawyer is here no, now. No, 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 um, no, because both Joe and I. I don't know what it was Frances was in. I think there'd been a film. She'd been in some fantastic play or something. We both really liked it that we'd seen. And so when it came to making the video, yeah, it was like, who who do we have? Who's you know? We sort of had felt we had to act out this thing or in some form. And yeah, so we got Frances. She was she was a jobbing act. She was an actress and got her to play the Sister of Mercy, and she was great. She was really good. How involved would you be in the um, videos? For me. Well, yeah. I, I was the one, it was my, that was part of my remit, you know, so though I had to come up with the idea and then I had to find the directors and then I had to organise them and then style them and do all that sort of stuff. So that was part of my thing was doing the videos, yeah. Do you have a favourite and a least favourite of the videos you made? Well, I remember making Lies, the first one. I mean, that was hilarious. That We went to New York, we'd made the track Lies. We went to New York and they said, oh, you have to make a video because we've now got a thing called MTV and you can't just make records out. Have to have videos and we went oh right okay <laughs> give us some money to the record company and we shot it all against blue screen couldn't think you know we just made up the most absurd things took a few lyrics out and and we shot us a blue screen put on ridiculous costumes put our horrible feet in the end like we were in a lunatic asylum it was mad it cost twelve thousand dollars i remember and i was really trying to do a sort of surrealist thing with magritte and bread loaves and <laughs> with umbrellas and we ran out of money so i couldn't afford all the loaves of bread that I really wanted in there. The budget was gone. So that was pretty, that, that was the beginning of the videos. <laughs> Us really thrown in the deep end. It was very funny. Do you have a favourite? I don't know, really. No, I haven't really got a favourite. Some of them work better than others. Quite like Sugar Daddy. came a lot later though that wasn't of um yeah I mean a couple of them I directed later on but that was when it was just Tom and me after Joe had left yeah okay mm. as your relationship to the song changed over the years did you view it differently now than you did then not really I think because I feel it sort of has stood the test of time I'm quite proud of it and I think, well, I didn't know that at the time. It just was what it was. It was a powerful song, but I, I sort of like it. It still, yeah, it still resonates. It's good. And before I got in contact with you, when was the last time you'd heard the song? Sister of Mercy. Yeah. Um, I heard it on a radio somewhere, actually, a couple of months ago. <laughs> well, that's one of my questions. So when a Thompson Twins song comes on the radio, yeah, 
Do you listen to it? Do you ignore it and leave it on or do you switch it off? No, I listen to it. It's great. You turn, it's the, you turn the volume up and say, hey. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. And, you know, usually if somebody's with us and they hear it, they turn it up. Somebody else is around or I will. Yeah, it's just, I, you know, I don't listen to the radio a whole lot unless I'm in the car. And Iggy Pop doesn't play it on his program. That's the other thing I listen to. <laughs> um, maybe I'll just send one to Iggy, send him a B-side and say, play this, just for my pleasure. What would be Iggy Pop's favourite Thompson Twins song, if you had to guess? Oh, mm, I, don't, I don't know. It'll have to be probably a B-side, uh, maybe Beach Culture. Okay. That was the B-side of something. I like that, and that was used to be really good fun to play. B-sides were always really good fun because you could just do whatever you liked, you know, made up all sorts of mad things. Ageography, quick fire round. Okay, a couple of just quick, quick fire questions on Sisters of Mercy. This could apply to Sister of Mercy or to any Thompson Twins song, okay? So the weirdest place you ever heard, either Sister of Mercy or a Thompson Twins song. Oh, blimey. Weirdest place. Yeah, like you wouldn't expect to hear a song. It's like, oh, that's one of mine. Oh, um, in a petrol station in Arkansas, I heard Hold Me Now. That gave <laughs> me the biggest thrill. <laughs> <laughs> and did you point it out to the people as you were paying for the petrol? That's, that's me there. Uh, I was playing in the petrol station, I think, and that, no, it was on tour and the tour bus pulled and it was on the petrol station and, and there were all these like really bearded sort of hillbilly guys <laughs> sitting around tapping their foot and it was great. That was like, I think that's when I sort of figured we'd actually made it. You crossed over. Yeah. Some sort of mad crossover into the world of, of people. <laughs> Who would you most like to cover the song, Sister of Mercy, if you could choose anybody? Well, of course, I would have loved Aretha Franklin. I used to try and write for Aretha. Lay Your Hands, I tried to write that for Aretha Franklin. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can hear that, yeah. Those big voices, those beautiful big voices is just, yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, she would probably be my choice for something like that. But yeah, it's that powerful, powerful big church song, a voice sound. Maybe Adele should cover it. Yeah, you get in touch with her. Shall I? Okay. If you want to come on the podcast, I say, no, I can't. Sorry, Adele, it's an 80s podcast. You're not relevant. <laughs> Tough priorities. Um, one thing you would change about the song? Oh, mm. oh, that line, now she's the one that's living in paradise. I don't know what I'd change it to, but I didn't, it slightly didn't work. Didn't what, did, what did that mean exactly? What were you saying by that? It's like she's found her happiness now, she, she's done this thing, that she's free of, of the husband. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, but it was, yeah, but it wasn't quite right. It didn't quite work. It sort of worked in a, it worked in a visual sound way, but it, it didn't really work properly in a meaning way. Ugh. I don't know. Okay. The person you'd least expect to say they loved your music that came up to you and said, I love your music. Oh, who might come up and say that? Yeah. Who is the strangest person that people wouldn't expect to be a Thompson Twins fan that came up to you and said, I love your music? Well, they didn't come up to me, but I heard that. Who are those two hairy biker people that do that cooking show? Oh, the hairy bikers. They're called the hairy bikers, aren't they? Is that what they're called? Okay. 
Yeah. So apparently one of them really likes a track from the Thompson Twins. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, really. I wonder which one, and I wonder which song. <laughs> it does bear an alarming resemblance to the bomb they dropped on our chip shop. I don't know. I can't remember. I, these things come and go, and I just go, yeah, and I'm doing another thing. But yeah, yeah. I heard the rumour anyway. And uh, three words to describe your feelings towards Sister of Mercy, or how you feel about it now. I'm proud of it. Mm. Proud of it. That's good. Proud of it. Yeah. Okay, so so briefly, we'll we'll touch over the the post Sister of Mercy period. We won't, we won't touch over it too much because obviously there's a, there's a lot of very negative things that happened at that time. But but actually, you pretty much covered the Future Days period. Sorry to give that one to you. Right, and then there was the disaster year. Yeah, I'm glad you've already covered that because I, I won't cover it now. There are still some good tracks on that album. I think Lay Your Lay Your Hands on Me is a fantastic song. Yeah, I love yeah. the t- other title track as well. I think that's an album I really love. And also. Don't mess Doc. Did you do the scream on Don't Mess with Doctor Dream? Yeah, I think so. But that was effects on it as well. Being one of those scream queen things. There were some good tracks on there, but um, I mean, Lay Your Hands was an attempt to really recreate Hold Me Now. So it was sort of ah, oh, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really from the heart. You know, it was almost writing to. It was a good song, but it was a bit like if you wrote a song for somebody else. Yeah. It wasn't pure on the same way other stuff had been. Uh, the song I didn't realise, I discovered, was the, the Nothing in Common song he did for the film, the Tom Hanks film. Are you saying you're not going to go to New York? The fourth time I'm saying I'm not going to New York. If you want this account, you'll get up off your ass, get packed. I, I'm, I'm counting now. One, two, three. Jesus Christ. Four. He really is. He's, five. He's counting. Six. This is the 20th century. Seven. Mr. Woolridge, I'm not some eight, shit kicker from off of your nine, farm. Ten! Look, I've done the job, all right? Take my stuff. Do whatever you want to do with it. But for the fifth time now, I'm not going anywhere with anybody. And don't you ever fucking touch me again. Yeah. It's a really good song, but I didn't even know it existed until I did my research. And then um, Tom Hanks is in the video with you. Mm, yeah. So what, what, what was like, like making that video? Because you play bass in the video as well, don't you? <laughs> yeah. That yeah. was, we made it in a car park with Tom Hanks. We had a day in a car park with Tom Hanks. I say a day, maybe about four hours. Oh, yeah. It was in Chicago, maybe Detroit. No, it was Chicago. And, you know, he, we, it was in this open top car and we were just sort of driving around with him. And people, it was a record company made it because it was a promo for the, for the um, yeah, it was a promo really for the film. I think. Um, anyway, yeah. So, and, and people kept shouting, Tom, Tom. And, and our Tom would look around and they'd just <laughs> <laughs> and the two Toms. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's been yeah. very humbling. It was a bit mortifying for Tom, I remember that day. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, Tom Hanks, he was really, really lovely, really nice. Such a good person to work with. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know. And, and you playing the bass in the video, or is that just a case of art? Miming it, I'm sure, you know. Um, do you think something was lost when Joe left? Because you're talking about that, that alchemy before the three of you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That was sort of those th- those three albums. So that was the pivotal thing. And we did we made uh, another 
record after Future Days called Close to Bone, which again, we shouldn't have made, we totally shouldn't have made that record. We should have just gone on holiday and gone, forget it. But we went out and we toured with that album. We went out to America and we did a sort of, uh, it was almost like a rock and roll tour. We had guitar and, you know, it was very guitar and bass and drum. It was just not really us. And, and our hearts went in it and Joe wasn't there. And it was just like, after that, we just went, you know what, we don't want to tour again without him. And we didn't. Then we stopped touring. Well, I always wonder about a band is when they, 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 they're going over after a certain period of time. Do you ever stop to actually discuss what are we? What, what is the band? What is our USP? What, what defines a Thompson Twins record? Like, do you ever, would you ever like, listen to your old records say that this is who we actually are and should be? Or is it just you're always looking... Because like the artist, you're always doing the next thing. You're not looking back as yeah, much. No, I think we were always doing the next thing. And I think once we got very famous too, once it all sort of took off and we got famous, it was pretty shocking, to be honest. You know, when you're pushed that fast, that quick into the limelight. And we worked fully every day, 365 days a year for, I think, three years. We didn't have a break at all. So we were frazzled. And I think a lot of what we got to in the end was we were just into um, sort of self-protection. So it was all like we just went, we didn't share a lot towards the end. I think that's why Joe left as well. We were all just holding on for, you know, for our lives really to whatever we could to, to sort of keep sanity within that mad world. So when was the last time you spoke to Joe? Uh, I had an email little back and forth with him last week. <laughs> last week? Oh, what's he doing now? Because he's not doing the... Um... He doing- no, he's he lives in LA. He's just he was. I think he was. He's working with somebody who does a lot of stuff with ayahuasca. He, he's got. He's quite shamany, and he's got things going on. Yeah, <laughs> I, he doesn't really say. He's a funny one. <laughs> you only know what Joe's doing when you're in a room with Joe. You know. <laughs> okay. So the last time I actually sat with him and hung out with him and we talked and I knew what he was doing was ooh, five years ago when I was in LA and. Um, we just hung out together, yeah. Uh, one of those enigmatic people, yeah. Yeah, he is. He's really enigmatic and he's really, yeah, he, he's a very interesting, really special person. And we're great friends, great friends. And um, contact with Tom, I, I assume that's still, you're still quite in contact because of the, your children. You've Yeah, we've got two children together. Yeah. How old are they now? Jackson and Indy, well, they're growing up. Jackson's 33, Indy's 28, 29. She's just about to have a baby. So Tom oh. and I are going to be like Thompson Twins, nanas so that's pretty good <laughs> you're excited about that about being a grandparent of course of course that's fantastic so you know and i think he's coming back to london to do some gigs or something because he goes out and does you know tom bailey's thompson twins and does those vintage shows whatever they are you know around the place so i know in a guardian interview in 2008 it's often quoted it seems online that he said you've been offered lots of money to reform but you'd rather vomit on your boots which <laughs> <laughs> is a beautiful image but that was 13 years ago. Have you ever thought, like, how much money would somebody have to offer you to reform the trio lineup of Thompson Twins for one reunion gig? Oh, no, I, we, we wouldn't do it. We okay, wouldn't. But you say that, but if somebody offered you a million pounds, would you do it? No, one no. gig? No, I don't need money. You Not even for a million pounds? No, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't need that sort of money. I mean, five million? No. Save the world, maybe. To save the world. Yeah. The comet was coming and we had to save the world. Then I would, you know, polish my boots up. I'd get out my marimba. Only the Thompson twins alive could deflect <laughs> that comet, yeah? 
Hold me now. No, no, no. It's really, it's a funny one. You just don't want to go back. You know, when I stopped doing music, it was like, that was it. I got into visual arts. I started doing a different thing. And now I sort of look back and it's like, yay, that was my, I did 15 years of that. It was an incredible, extraordinary thing. I made lots of records, you know, had, it was brilliant, but I don't want to do music again. I came to an end with it. It became too predictable and it became like a job. And I didn't want it to be a job. It just ruined it. That's fair enough. Yeah. As long as you're happy, Alana, that's what matters. <laughs> yeah. That might, that might be a bit difficult. That's asking a bit much. Okay. Well, as long, long as you're on the road to happiness or you're less <laughs> unhappy, not doing what you don't want to be doing. That's good. But I'm going to end on the, the four questions I always end on the end of a, a normal episode, if that's okay. Sure. Okay. What's your worst professional experience of the 80s? You might have mentioned it already. You might not. Oh, my worst. Oh, these are really hard. You should have told me these. Being at a gig, a really playing live gig. And I used to do this thing where I had the silhouette of this mad sort of machine that I had behind a screen. And I was play, and I used to hit part of it with, I do this sort of mechanical percussion thing. And part of it, I played a fire extinguisher on, you know, and then I hit the hammer. And yeah, I hit the hammer on the machine. The hammer went flying and hit the roadie <laughs> on the head and he fell over. That was pretty oh, bad. Oh. Did he get up though? Yeah, he did. I didn't okay. get up. So That's that was fine. <laughs> That's fine then. Okay, your best professional moment of the 80s. One single moment you can think of as like, that was the highlight. There were so many. You can't do that to me. Mm. Was Live Aid a highlight? Was that something you always remember? Is that something that's... no. Live Aid, Live Aid, you know, looked good from the outside, but on the inside, it was really backstage. I, we were in New York, you know, um, playing. Uh, no, sorry, not New York, in Philadelphia. Yeah. And it was all about managers running around backstage trying to get the best time slot for their band. It was really ungenerous and un-the-world-like. It was just total business, evil business backstage. It was very funny. It's like how they compare Band-Aid to um, We Are The World. It's very similar to well. just all these pop stars in London just rock up and just, just turn up and in America. It's all kind of, yeah, it's all the politics. and the, yeah. Yeah, 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 no, that was fun. No, um, let me think. There were really, really just so many. Madison Square Gardens was a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing gig. That was great. It was the gigs. The gigs were the best. I remember playing one in Belfast too that was fantastic in an old theatre where half the roof had come off and the rain was coming in on the stage onto the electrics. But it was just the most emotional, amazing gig because it was a really mixed Protestant and Catholic group of kids and they were saying they hadn't done that before, you know, so that was great. People were weeping. It was amazing. Amazing. Amazing, but very close to being the worst professional experience of the evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Depending on how the range it was, felt, yeah. it was all it had to have that edge, sure. But you must have been quite nervous during the gig, thinking at any moment we could all be electrocuted and killed. Yeah, yeah. and there was playing and playing. As a frisson to it, yeah. Well, that, oh, that edge always gives it. Absolutely. It's a yeah. 
And, and I remember, you know, we stayed in a hotel. I can't remember the name of it in Belfast. It was a classic one. We all, and it had bullet holes all in the wall. And there was always this sort of fear that, you know, somebody was just going to come in and kill you. You know, we shouldn't have been in that place at that time. But actually, it was just, it was a beautiful, beautiful gig. There were so many. We also supported the police at LA Raceway. And I think there were 100,000 people there or 50,000, whatever. You lose count after about 30. Did you tell Sting that you just worked with his ex-wife? He <laughs> <laughs> speaks very highly of you. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, no, that was an amazing gig. That was fantastic. Huge, huge. Aud- that was the biggest audience we'd played to up till then, I think. And it was just, even though we were the support band, it was incredible. And so then that would have been 83 or 84? Uh, that would have been 80. Yeah, either or. Can't either remember. or, okay. Summertime amazing they were at the peak of their best ever playing it was a beautiful night they had wonderful backing singers i mean the whole thing was just yeah gorgeous really simple beautiful the eternal jukebox okay i'll do a thing called eternal jukebox where with a guest all their music will be lost forever apart from three songs that will live on which three songs would you pick of the Thompson Twins. My songs or somebody yeah. else's? Of your songs. Oh. Your back catalogue will be wiped away, be wiped, that's it, it's gone, but three of them you can keep. Well, obviously, Hold Me Now. Um, hold Me Now. If You Were Here, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's a nice, that's a really nice song, isn't it? Yeah. There's a song called Jane. Jane, Jane, You're So Strange. Won't you play with me again? Play with me again, I think, because the nine track. I can't remember. That was from much later on, but that one, yeah, that's one of my <laughs> favourites. I was kind of hoping you say Sister of Mercy singers. That's what this entire interview is about. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say Sister of Mercy. I'll have four. I'll stick Jane at the end. Or I'll just edit, edit you saying that and take one of those other ones out and just say, or just have you say Sister of Mercy three times and just end <laughs> on that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and three words to describe your 80s. Three words to... Yeah, oh. describe your 80s. Mad, fun, psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Anything else you wish to declare about your time with the Thompson Twins? Is there anything you can think of that like nobody knows? The lake? Oh, yeah, but I'm not going to be telling you, am Oh, I? come on. Oh, you so well, me. Alana. Come on. <laughs> No, you should have you should have sent me these things because like I'm old now, I can't remember. <laughs> That's great. I guess you're out of jail now, doesn't it? Eh? Well, if you've got any advice on how to how to bring up a daughter, because it's, it's I don't know. Uh, yes, I do bring up yeah. your daughter like you'd bring up your boys. That's what I try to do. I try to I don't treat her any differently, but in the same way, I, I want her to be. It's, it's I don't know. How how do you how do you view like feminism today compared to how it was forty years ago? No, sometimes I get really depressed that things haven't really moved on that far. And then I see things where, yeah, women are out there doing it. But yeah, there's, I mean, it's, it's you know, I have this other thing. I didn't, don't do bands anymore. I work in visual arts and I think my approach is still similar. So I have things like I make up these bands, but they're sort of art bands, but they're not, they don't play music. They make work and, and installations and stuff like that. And I've got this one called the Sisters of Perpetual Resistance. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. <laughs> that's been going for a while. And they're militant feminists. And um, yeah, they're interesting. So I think it's, and the idea of perpetual resistance, we just have to keep on keeping on, really. To eradicate it, you know. I mean, yeah. right every inch of, your, of space, you have to push back all the time. Men 
men by nature, the patriarchy will colonize women. You know, that's what it is. And the world is going to end soon. So hmm. who yeah. cares? But at least we'll have, have the soundtrack of the Thompson twins to die out to, eh? Eh? <gasps> Oh. But thank you for doing this. It's been absolutely fantastic. How have you felt about it? Has it been okay? Yeah, actually, actually, it was really, really easy. I was quite trepidatious about doing it because I don't do oh. interviews very much. And you have to sort of go back and dig up over a lot of that stuff. And it's a long time ago, you know, so yeah. some of it I don't remember the specifics of and some of it I remember very, very clearly. So, yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. You were good. That is the end of the interview. I would throw it all away. So I thought it was a fascinating interview with Alana. Uh, I can't thank her enough. I know she doesn't talk that often about her Thompson Twins days. It reminded me of approaching Ian Stanley for the Tears of Fear season I did. Well, with, in both cases, I felt just getting a response to the email was a win. So to actually get to speak to, to both of them was, was a great thrill. In the emails afterwards, she pointed out the um, Spotify bio for Thompson Twins and how she was referenced as someone who provided kids with Tom Bailey. And if you look at the, the main banner picture, it's actually a picture of Tom and Joe. Which is weird because there can't have been many pictures of just the two of them. And it's weird they picked that as the picture. So uh, yeah, so she's still fighting the good fight after all those years. Thank you to Alana, massive thanks. Reach on Twitter, at Miss Pacano. I hope I've pronounced that right. That's um, all lowercase above from capital P. Uh, Instagram, the sister of perpetual resistance, and on her website, misspecano.com, or lowercase, where you can see some of her art and, and purchase items, such as the Jimmy Corty Smiley Face Riot Shield. <laughs> it's got a lovely note on it. All shields are battle scarred ex UK police issue. Battle scars may include impact cracks, protester blood, sweat, and tears, and police constable residue. Note it is not an offence to own a Jimmy Corty work of art, but it may be an offence to use the artwork in a riot. So please bear that in mind before purchasing. And that is Jimmy Corti of um, KLF. Uh, I love that she still has that fire and anger and desire for change after all these years. It's quite inspirational, especially as the father of a daughter. So thanks again to Alana. That was great. So Thompson Twins had 10 UK top 40 hit singles. So that's perfect for an 80s top 10 of the top 10 UK hit singles for Thompson Twins. Number 10. With Grace Jones' mum's daughter on vocals from Quick Step and Psychic 1983, watching. Number 9. Uh, top 10 hit in the US from Here's to Future Days 1985, King for a Day. We are Detective Top 10 UK Hit from Quick Step and Sidekick 1983. To Number 7. Uh, top 20 UK Hit from Here's to Future Days. Ooh, ooh, ow, ooh, ooh, ow. Don't mess with Dr. Dream. Number six. Take me You Take Me Up, chart-wise, the most successful hit in the UK, number two, from Into the Gap, 1984. Number five. 
Now this one, Sister of Mercy, fourth single from Into the Gap, number 11 in 1984. Number four. Uh, breakthrough hit in the UK, top 10, 1983 from Quick Step and Psychic, Love on Your Side. First single from here's a few days, number 11 in the UK in 84 and number 6 in the US in 85, Lay Your Hands On Me. Number 2. Doctor Doctor, number 3 in the UK, Into the Gap, 1984. And of course, has to be Hold Me Now, number four in the UK and number three in the US from Into the Gap. Let loving start. If you want a hugely enjoyable 45 minutes, then, then make a playlist of those 10 songs. Uh, superior 80s pop, you can't go wrong. Lay Your Hands On Me is the hidden gem. Listen to them all again. And hearing Alana say it was kind of a cynical rewrite of Hold Me Now, or an attempt to recapture the success of Hold Me Now, proves that negative, cynical intent does not mean a negative outcome, necessarily. Because I think it's, it doesn't sound it. It sounds like it's... Perfect pop song. Uh, so talking about hidden gems, one of Alana's three faves of the 80s is a gem from Quick Step and Psychic. If you were here, this is lovely. So uh, till next time, have a better one.
Well, you better not turn your back on a paradise.